Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. It's brand new, season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeart Podcasts, and how the tech are you? So this morning I was thinking, as I often do, about artificial intelligence and how quickly various people and companies are rushing to apply AI to just about everything. And this isn't exactly new. It would be naive and reductive to say it were so. Researchers have been developing AI for decades, with a focus on different aspects of AI throughout the ages. Generative AI, while splashy, is really just one of the more recent implementations that have has caught our attention. So while we can't say that AI has exactly crept up on us, the push to make use of AI when one could argue we don't even have a full appreciation for what it can do both in good and bad scenarios means that we're being a little premature. And this actually reminds me of shoe stores. Now, that's a pretty big leap, but I promise I'm going somewhere. I'm sure you've all heard the phrase, history repeats itself, or maybe the slightly more florid version those who do not learn from history are doomed to repeat it. Well, once upon a time, there was an era in which people made use of a powerful technology for a trivial purpose, and many people potentially paid the price for that decision. This is just one example, obviously. There are lots of others, some of which are famous enough to have had entire documentaries made about their stories. But I am talking about when shoe salespeople were regularly irradiated as part of their job. Okay, so let's set the scene. And 
It's the last decade of the 19th century. 1895, in fact. And a German smarty-pants by the name of Wilhelm Conrad Röntgen was working as the director of the Physical Institute at the University of Fersberg. Now, I don't mean he was working at a physical school and other people were, I don't know, working in some sort of philosophically hypothetical school. That would be putting Descartes before the horse. Rather, I mean, Röntgen specialized in physics. In the 1890s, he was experimenting with a fairly new technology, what essentially was a cathode ray tube, or CRT. This is the technology that would later be responsible for producing images in old television sets, the, the big boxy kind that you might remember from decades ago. Röntgen was studying how high-voltage electricity could pass through low-vacuum tubes, like essentially a cathode ray tube. Now, the story goes that one day he was shutting things down for the evening in his lab, and he noticed something peculiar. So he had covered the cathode tube with a piece of black cardboard, and when he powered up the tube and turned off the light, he saw that there was something glowing in his lab. So he investigates, and he discovers the glowing is coming from a piece of paper that has a coating of barium platinocyanide on it, and that this is what was glowing in the dark. And it was several feet away from the tube, which again was covered by black cardboard. It was far enough away from the tube that Röntgen thought the tube would not be able to illuminate this particular piece of paper. Moreover, there was some sort of energy outside of visible light happening here, something that could stimulate the barium cyanide to fluoresce and something that could pass through this black cardboard. Now, Röntgen was a methodical sort, and he repeated this somewhat accidental experiment many times to make certain that what he was seeing was actually real, that there was something to it. He further investigated the phenomena for weeks before deciding to publish any papers or even discuss the matter with anyone else. He knew that lots of other people were doing experiments with these low vacuum tubes, so he didn't want to tip his hand too early and perhaps lose out on, on you know, snagging a really big scientific discovery. Turns out this was a really good idea because there were no shortage of people who were absolutely certain they had discovered something new and exciting. And then after other people looked into it, they found out that there wasn't really any discovery there at all, which could be pretty humiliating. But this was not the case with Röntgen. He had made the first documented observation of what we would call X-rays. In fact, what he would call X-rays. X-rays because X represents an unknown variable. What's more, Röntgen noticed something really darn cool. So let's say that he hung up a sheet of paper that had a coating of barium cyanide on it, and he put that a few feet away from the tube. And then he energizes the tube. He turns it on, essentially. If he put his hand between the tube, which was serving as a lamp, and the sheet of paper, then on the sheet of paper he would see projected the bones of his hand. It was as though he could see straight through his flesh and look at the skeleton inside. 
clearly he couldn't just keep this a secret, so he had to tell his closest friend. He brought his wife to his lab and showed her the discovery. He had her hold her hand against a sheet of this paper, and then he exposed her hand for a 15-minute-long x-ray exposure. And instead of it just projecting the images of the bones on the sheet of paper, it actually made a record of it. An image, like a photograph, the first radiograph known on record. She reportedly exclaimed, I have seen my own death, meaning she had seen her own skeleton. Those Thuringians really knew how to turn up the romance, it tells you. Anyway, after weeks of investigative work, Röntgen reached a point where he felt confident in coming forward to his peers to present his findings. And once he did, it caught on like a house on fire. His paper published at the end of 1895, in December of 1895. By 1896, people were making practical use of x-rays. Mostly, this was in the medical field, but not exclusively. Because suddenly it was possible for physicians to gaze into the human body, you know, looking into a patient without first having to make an opening, which, as you can imagine, presents certain advantages. All right, but now it's time to jump to a different smarty pants, someone who was quite the opportunistic smarty pants. In fact, some people could argue that the true smarty pants nature of this man is that he found new ways to claim authorship over work that really just happened within his place of business. I am talking about Thomas Edison. Now, whether you think of Edison as a truly brilliant inventor, responsible for inventing countless things in his lifetime, or you think of him as someone who was more likely to employ people who did most of the actual inventing, and then he would put his names on the patents, I'll leave all that to you. The truth of the matter is probably somewhere in the middle. But the important part of our story is that Edison and his staff were working on a technology that would leverage x-rays in a really interesting way. So, the basic concept wasn't that different from what Röntgen had been experimenting with in his lab. The invention would have a screen that would be coated with some sort of fluorescent material on it and would thus fluoresce when exposed to x-rays. There would also be a lamp capable of generating those x-rays. And if you were to place something between the lamp and the screen, you would be able to see the stuff that blocked x-rays from hitting the screen. Now, your flesh would let x-rays pass right through it. So you would see your bones on the fluorescent screen behind. And you could have the lamp on, you can move your hand back and forth, and you can watch the, the bones in your hands move in real time. Edison called his invention the Vitascope. And I'm pretty sure later on he thought that was a really ironic name, a poor name for him to pick for this invention. Because Vita means life. You can see that in words like vitality. But the Vitascope would actually lead to the death of one of Edison's most loyal members of staff. That person was Clarence Madison Daly. He, like his father and his brothers, would work as a glassblower for Thomas Edison. Daly worked closely with Edison while trying to design a practical incandescent lamp. Again, Edison didn't really invent the light bulb, 
But in his lab, the light bulb was turned into something that was actually of practical use. Now, upon Röntgen's discovery of X-rays, Daly would actually shift his own work to focus on creating X-ray lamps, as well as a fluorescent sheet that actually used calcium tungstate as the fluorescing material instead of the uh, the barium platinocyanide. Uh, this was seen to produce sharper images and thus a higher fidelity kind of image. For years, Daly worked in the lab, developing this technology, perfecting it. And over time, he began to experience some pretty, I mean, not just pretty, some truly serious health problems. Uh, his hands showed signs of radiation burns, particularly his left hand, which he used to demonstrate the x-rays by, by waving it in the path of the x-rays. Uh, he began to develop skin lesions, which are part of you know radiation burns. Uh, his problems progressed to the point that he actually had to have his left hand amputated, but that was only the beginning. Later on, he had to have more of his left arm amputated, uh, then several of the fingers on his right hand, and then ultimately he had one arm amputated to the elbow and the other arm amputated to the shoulder, but the damage was even more severe. And in 1904, when he was not even 40 years old, Daly passed away from terminal cancer. This experience hit Edison very, very hard. He truly liked Daly. And it also convinced him that X-ray technology was far more dangerous than beneficial. And he was quoted to say, Don't talk to me about X-rays. I am afraid of them. But Edison's team had already invented the fluoroscope at that point, And there were all sorts of potential applications for that technology. When we come back, I'll talk about some of those. But first... Let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including actress and star of the mega hit sitcom Friends, Courtney Cox. You can't go around it, so you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's going to catch you down the road. Go through it. Deal with it. Comedian, writer, and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney. I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. It's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault, but you'll still feel guilty. Alt-rock icon, Liz Fair. That personal disaster wrote Guyville. So everything comes out of a dead end. And many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. 
Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to acclaimed musician and entrepreneur, Mr. Worldwide himself, Pitbull. A lot of artists in general, people that are very creative, sometimes tend to overthink. That's one of my number one rules. Don't ever overthink. You can think ahead, but don't overthink. And what I mean by that is when they start to write a record, they're like, oh, that's not the line. Oh, that's not this. Oh, it's not that. And everybody has a creative process. I'm not knocking it. For me, I just let it flow. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, before the break, I mentioned that Edison's fluoroscope would end up having various applications. So the most obvious ones were in medicine, right? Uh, And there was a darn good reason to lean heavily on medicine in the early 20th century. You had a real provocative reason why you wanted to advance the the science of medicine. Uh, Several million reasons, as it turned out, because in July 1914, World War I began. Of course, back then, we didn't call it World War I because folks were being optimistic. Anyway, one of the big challenges presented by the World War involved making sure soldiers had the right equipment, and that included a good pair of boots. Soldiers could end up having terrible injuries if they weren't wearing the right boots. They wouldn't be able to march as far. They could suffer from things like trench foot. So they needed to make sure the boots were as well-made and as good a fit as was practical for the purposes of mass producing them for soldiers. This is a delicate thing to balance. So the thought was, We should make sure that soldiers had boots that would give them the support they needed and not create a source of distraction or injury. And so a guy named Frank Kiefer created a book that he titled A Textbook of Military Hygiene and Sanitation. This was all with the goal of trying to keep soldiers as healthy as possible before they were forced to march out in front of a German machine gun. In this textbook, Kiefer included X-ray images also known as radiographs, in order to show how a soldier's foot should fit inside a boot and what it would look like if the soldier were wearing the wrong size boot. So this was really just to illustrate the importance of matching the size to the soldier. Kiefer was not suggesting that the army invest in thousands of fluoroscopes and check each recruit individually. This was just to demonstrate the importance of a good fit. But His idea sparked other ideas. A doctor named Jacob J. Lowe used a fluoroscope to examine wounded soldiers' feet without having to first take off their boots. And you can definitely understand how that could be a really useful thing to do. You know, why would you potentially make an injury worse or perhaps even create a new injury if you can get a look in a non-invasive kind of way? And it worked so well that Lowe thought it would make sense to bring the technology to podiatrists and to shoe stores in general. Why just use this on soldiers when you could have a fluoroscope in your local shoe shop? Customers could try on a pair of new shoes. They could step up to the fluoroscope. The staff could check to make sure that the shoes were actually a really good fit. Maybe they could even employ someone 
who could take a look at those images and say, oh, you know what? You need special shoes because otherwise you're not going to get the support you need and your feet are going to hurt, right? You could actually employ people who could be experts in this. They could be like the equivalent of a foot doctor working in a shoe store and, and practice preventive medicine. It would be incredible. So Lowe files for a patent in 1919 for a, a shoe store version of this technology. However, it would take nearly a decade for the patent office to grant a patent. He called it the Footoscope, and I am not making a joke about that. That is actually what it would be called. And yeah, the idea is that the customer would stick their feet into this machine. I'll, I'll describe it in a second. And the shoe store salesperson would be able to look through a visor and determine if the shoe was a good fit or not. Lowe was not the only person pursuing this dream, believe it or not. There were others around the world who were filing similar patents. And while they filed their patents after Lowe had already submitted his to the U.S. Patent Office, in at least a couple of cases, uh, they got their patents first. So kind of shows the, the great injustice of global commerce, right? But eventually it all shook out that really there were two major companies that would use this technology to create machines for shoe shops. So in England, you had a company called the Petascope Company. And here in the United States, you had the X-Ray Shoe Fitter Incorporated. Now, these fluoroscopes looked a lot like a, a tall wooden cabinet, maybe like a little bit higher than waist tall. So the customer would approach the cabinet on one side and the customer would be standing up and they would step up onto a step at the base of the cabinet. And at that point uh, in the cabinet's wall, there was kind of a little alcove where they could you know, slide their feet into this thing. So it's inside the cabinet. So you're standing on the step. Your feet are now inside the cabinet on the inside of the cabinet the x-ray lamp would actually be below the customer's feet pointing up at a fluorescent screen. And the fluorescent screen would be above the customer's feet. So the lamp would blast x-rays up through the shoes, through the flesh of the customer's feet and would leave a moving image of dim bones on the fluorescent screen, which staff could view from above. So on the opposite side of the cabinet, were the controls that the staff would use. So pretty simple stuff. They would have, you know, like a switch to turn the fluoroscope on. And at that point, they would start uh, powering up the, the cathode ray tube and start beaming x-rays toward the fluorescent screen. Uh, there would be at least one, but usually several viewing ports that would look down from the top of the cabinet into the cabinet itself. Now, these ports remind me a little bit of like a submarine periscope, you know, it has kind of like a visor kind of, of attachment that fits around the eyes, which of course obviously blocks out the ambient light of the shop while you're looking at the tootsies inside the cabinet and the multiple visors meant more than one person could look at a time. So maybe it's the shoe salesperson, maybe they have an assistant and there's probably some curious looky loo who wants to take a look at skeleton bones. In fact, I'm sure there was no shortage of variations of the phrase, oh honey, I can see your skeleton feet in these shoe shops at the time. Anyway, the idea was the shoe salesperson would be able to study the feet 
inside the shoe and determine if the shoe really was a good fit. Though I'm sure in many, perhaps most cases, the real use of the technology was that it attracted customers and it helped move sales. Sure, I bet in some cases the clerk might say, this pair of shoes looks like it's on the small side for you, or maybe you need a wider pair of shoes or something along those lines. But most of the time, I bet it was really just a way to get folks into the door. Now, as I'm sure you've all gathered, this practice was also extremely dangerous. Customers might get a large dose of x-rays, a larger one than they would in a normal year, especially these days. But the real risk was for the staff who are using these machines over and over on multiple customers a day. The first of these machines hit the market in 1927. We wouldn't even settle on a standard unit of measurement for radiation, the Röntgen, named after the guy who discovered x-rays. We wouldn't decide on that till 1928, the following year. And we still didn't have that much data to draw conclusions as to how much or how little radiation exposure was really safe or harmful. Now, you had some scientists who were arguing that it would be a really bad idea to make use of radiation technology in an environment like a shoe store, that it represented a true risk to employees, that radiation really was no joke. Then you had, on the other side, the owners of the stores who essentially said, shut up. The stores were claiming that the x-rays would let them create real, like, osteopathic solutions to foot problems. But in reality, almost no one had that kind of expertise or knowledge or experience. They had no way of making any real meaningful decisions based on what they were seeing. It was just a gimmick and a gravy train. And by golly, they didn't need some boffin telling them that their killer sales pitch was going to give them cancer. And so the machines prospered for a couple of decades. In fact, by the 1940s, there were something like 10 thousand fluoroscopes in the United States alone. There were another, say, 3,000 in the UK, and there were a few thousand more in a couple of other countries. So just imagine for a moment, all those store employees who absorbed way more x-rays than any person is supposed to in a day. Just most people wouldn't even absorb that much in a full year. And day after day, these folks were getting blasted by x-rays. When, in the mid-1940s, the American Standards Association made a determination about x-rays, they concluded that, at max, a person should encounter less than 0.1 rentgens worth of radiation per day. Now, in 1948, there was a survey done of around 40-something machines that were being used in Detroit, these fluoroscope machines. And in that study, they found that the machine's uh, emitted radiation at a level between 16 to 75 rentgens per minute. You were not supposed to absorb more than 0.1 per day. Now, keep in mind, the standards, those are for like super protective. Let's be extra careful. Let's limit liability as much as possible. So you could argue that it's it's overly cautious if you want to take that point of view. But the point being that these machines were putting out way more radiation than what people were supposed to be encountering in a work environment. They were dangerous. And they were largely unregulated. In the United States, laws about these devices were on a state-by-state -state basis. 
In fact, it wouldn't be until the 1970s that you would start to see laws across the country limiting their use and requiring the machines to adhere to strict rules for manufacturing and operation. Pennsylvania was the first U.S. state to ban them outright. That was in 1957. Even by 1970, only 33 states had a ban in place. The federal government couldn't take action until the early 1970s because there was no legal basis. The FDA, which was the most likely organization to be able to step in, had no authority for anything that had to do with radiation. That was not part of their responsibilities. So there was nothing they could do. There was no legal basis to make any kind of action on a federal level. This was a case where technology and science had far outpaced our laws and our capacity to do anything from a legal standpoint, which sounds familiar to me as I talk about this and as I talk about things like AI. Now, one thing that may have somewhat taken the wind out of the fluoroscopes sales was the Second World War. Before the introduction of the atom bomb, radiation was thought of as more like this amazing kind of energy that could do phenomenal stuff. Like, like you could use radiation for anything to, to in science fiction, it was to blast around in space or fly at incredible speeds over the land or all sorts of things. And you'd be able to use it for industry. Radiation was wonderful. You know, maybe it'd even power a superhero. But then you get to the end of World War II when Fat Man and Little Boy demonstrated the dreadful power of the atom and the stories of radiation poisoning and terrible things of that nature really changed the picture pretty quickly. People saw the destructive nature of radiation or the destructive capability, I guess I should say, of radiation. And so now the perception shifted dramatically. It went from space age energy to this is something we should be scared of. It's an invisible killer. Be afraid. You know, you get into the Cold War, the threat of nuclear war, all this perception of radiation changes. It was a, a massive cultural shift. Keep in mind, the radiation itself never changed. It was the same from beginning to end. It was that way before we got here. It'll be that way after we leave. It's just our perception that changed. And it's interesting because we would embrace our fear along with ignorance about radiation in the exact same way that we embraced exuberance and ignorance about radiation earlier, you know, a few decades earlier. But now, instead of thinking, hey, I can use this invisible ray to see my bones and make my feet fit better in these shoes. Now, people are thinking radiation will create bloodthirsty monsters that will hunt us all down. So the pendulum ever swings. All right, we're going to take another quick break. But when we come back, I'll talk a little bit more about fluoroscopes and what happened with those as well as kind of relate it back to what I think it has to do with artificial intelligence. But first, let's thank our sponsors. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. 
Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Mini Driver. And this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including actress and star of the mega hit sitcom Friends, Courtney Cox. You can't go around it, so you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's going to catch you down the road. Go through it. Deal with it. Comedian, writer, and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney. I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. It's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault, but you'll still feel guilty. Alt-rock icon, Liz Fair. That personal disaster wrote Guyville. So everything comes out of a dead end. And many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to acclaimed musician and entrepreneur, Mr. Worldwide himself, Pitbull. A lot of artists in general, people that are very creative, sometimes tend to overthink. That's one of my number one rules. Don't ever overthink. You can think ahead, but don't overthink. And what I mean by that is when they start to write a record, they're like, oh, that's not the line. Oh, that's not this. Oh, it's not that. And everybody has a creative process. I'm not knocking it. For me, I just let it flow. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, so we're back to talk more about fluoroscopes and the use of x-rays in shoe stores. There was something of a decline in interest in fluoroscopes after World War II, but as I mentioned, the technology actually stuck around for decades, right? I saw articles that said as late as the 1970s, there were a few places that were still using them. And these days, you can sometimes find an example of a fluoroscope in a place like a museum, but otherwise you're not likely to run into one, and that's for the best. Because, as I have said, these devices were dangerous. Now, I am unaware of any kind of comprehensive study that looked into how many people in shoe stores were injured by these devices. There are certainly incidents, isolated incidents, that we can point to. For example, Harold Bavley reported in a paper for National Safety News back in 1950 that a woman who had been serving as a shoe model in a store ended up uh, having radiation burns on one leg just from the fact that she was going into the store every day and they were operating this fluoroscope. And the leakage from these cabinets could go as far as 10 feet away. These stores were not necessarily huge. So this woman had suffered a severe radiation burn on one leg. And ultimately, doctors chose to amputate the leg because that's how serious it had become. That's a terrible story. That's just one, though. There are a couple of others, at least, that are fairly well documented and seem to link back 
to the use of these fluoroscopes in shoe stores. But part of the challenge of actually assessing the impact these machines could have had on store employees is that apart from acute injuries like radiation burns, it could be hard to ascribe radiation as the reason for a problem. We really think of radiation as increasing risk for certain things like cancer, but that's increasing risk. Like you might have cancer, but then can you actually track that back and say, the reason I have cancer is because of the increased risk that I endured due to exposure to x-rays. That's harder to determine, right? Like you might not be able to track down the actual source, the reason for the cancer. If you have a large enough sample size, then you might be able to draw some, some general conclusions, but there's just not been any kind of study like that. So it's not always an open and shut case. You cannot just definitively say X number of people uh, ended up encountering massive health problems due to their exposure to fluoroscopes. That's just not a, a metric that we can confidently point at. We can certainly say the likelihood is very high that lots of people ended up having uh, health problems due to those fluoroscopes, but that's about as far as we can go. It gets very vague. One important thing to remember, though, is that shoe fluoroscopes were categorically a bad idea. They, they had no justification. It was a bad way to use a new technology. It's not that the te technology itself was bad. It was just a bad implementation, right? Obviously, x-rays have their use. We use x-rays today for lots of stuff, just not to fit shoes on people. It's a technology that posed dangers that we did not fully understand or appreciate when we developed the technology. It put people at risk unnecessarily. And you can make the argument that they didn't really do anything useful at all, right? It, it just served as a sales gimmick because the people who were actually running the tech didn't have the training or knowledge to do anything useful with the information other than sell some shoes. And that really does bring me back to artificial intelligence. I see the rush to integrate AI into business solutions as being somewhat similar to how these shoe stores were doing this with x-ray machines. I am convinced that many of the business leaders who are making these choices do not yet have a real firm grasp on what they actually intend to accomplish with AI. It's not that artificial intelligence is useless. It's not that it's bad. But artificial intelligence can also end up being risky, depending on how you implement it. It can even be dangerous. And unless you are implementing it the right way, and for the right reasons, then you're far more likely to do more harm than you are to do good. Now, that harm could just be in the form of business results. Maybe it just means that in the short term, you don't perform as well as you had hoped, or you have demoralized your employee base, and now you have to rebuild because it turns out the AI couldn't do what you needed it to do, or it was doing it in a way that wasn't helpful. Or that harm could be something far more tangible. Ultimately, it could even be tragic. Now, am I off base? Is there no parallel here? I'm not convinced. To me, it feels like we're walking down a path that we've walked down many times before. Or maybe even we're not walking down a path. We're barreling through the woods in the same general direction as one we've taken before. 
And it was a direction that ended up getting us scraped up, bumped up. We lost people along the way. And I think we're doing it again. I do not necessarily think AI is going to spell the end of everything. I'm not a doomsayer. I'm not saying AI is going to end us all. I do think what we're seeing right now is kind of a, an undirected scramble that's largely fed by the fear of being left behind. That you have business leaders who are saying, we can't sleep on this because if we do, our competitors are going to get ahead of us and we'll never catch up. I think that's what's feeding a lot of this discourse. And often that can mean that you actually end up pushing yourself backward because you make a bad implementation than if you had just stayed the course. Not that I'm saying anyone has to just do things the way they've always done them because that's how they've always done them, but they do need to have a greater understanding of the technology and its consequences before putting it in action. That to me just is common sense. And again, we just look back at the fluoroscopes in these shoe stores to say, here's an example of what can go wrong if we don't take those steps. People can get sick. They could even die. It's something that we need to keep in mind. Okay, that's it for this episode of Tech Stuff. I thought it was really interesting to dive back into that part of the tech. This does obviously have parallels elsewhere in the tech space. I mean, there were the so-called radium girls, the women who would uh, use little paintbrushes to paint thin lines of radium on uh, watch hands and watch numbers so that you could have glow-in-the-dark watches. Uh, often they would end up licking their paintbrushes in order to be able to keep it at a fine point. And a lot of the, those women ended up having terrible problems later on in life because of radiation. So again, it's not the only case where we embraced a technology and a phenomenon that we didn't really understand fully. Uh, and we did so without any hesitation and people ultimately paid the price for that. So again, just words of caution out there for us to consider on occasion while we're hearing all the evangelists push really hard for companies to jump on board and adopt this stuff. That's it. I hope you're all well, and I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals, 
join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.